Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It's my great pleasure today to be speaking to Rebecca Rivetto. Rebecca is a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. She currently works within the special education department at a middle school in Silicon Valley, where she is the staff therapist for a therapeutic day class for students with emotional barriers to school, a special day class for students with mild to moderate autism, and students who receive counseling as part of their IEP support services. She also has a private practice in Santa Cruz, California. As a therapist, Rebecca has worked in community mental health with women in a state-run welfare-to-work rehabilitation program in Southern California, in addictions with nonviolent drug offenders in, in Marin, California, and in a community counseling center in Oakland, California. Before becoming a therapist, Rebecca started her career as a teacher in California working in a special day class with third through sixth graders who experienced emotional and behavioral barriers in school. She has worked as a nanny, a health services specialist and program manager for Planned Parenthood, a consultant with UN Women regarding voting rights of women in Albania, and as an education director for a children's museum. Rebecca has a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from UC Santa Cruz and a Master's in Counseling Psychology with an emphasis in Holistic Studies from John F. Kennedy University. She is currently a scholar in Stephen Jenkinson's Orphan Wisdom School, has studied mindfulness with Thich Nhat Hanh, and is a board member of the Child Therapy Institute in Berkeley, California. Personally, I know Rebecca to be fiercely supportive, unfailingly generous, uproariously funny, and a faithful witness to the times we're in. Welcome to Precipice, Rebecca. Wow, Annie, thanks. I <laughs> I have, I get a little teary hearing all that. I'm like, who are you talking about? Oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's you. It's me. That's been, <laughs> it's fun to hear yourself spoken about in such a way. That's kind of fun. doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah. So as a place to begin, I'm wondering if you can speak a bit to your current work with middle school students and for people who perhaps haven't been to a middle school since their own adolescence or who maybe don't have much interaction with young people in that setting these days, um, what does it look like these days to work in the schools? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question and actually one that I get more often than you would think um, because as it turns out, Middle school is a very significant time for most people, it seems, in North America. Um, And people have pretty distinct memories. Um, So 
So today, what middle school looks like from somebody who was once a middle schooler and has somehow found herself spending her days in middle school, almost, I tell myself it's not a purgatory, that this is actually where (laughs) I'm needed. (laughs) Like, How did I end up working in middle school all day long for my adult life? Um, Middle school today, to be honest, doesn't look so different than the way it looked when I was there, which often surprises me. Um, so social issues in terms of girls trying to figure out with girls how to be socially aligned, the ins, the outs, boys, um, both trying to figure out what is socially acceptable in terms of what they can express emotionally, um, that they are definitely, you know, this high level of hormones and, um, And so in very many ways, similar to what I experienced in middle school and not things have not changed in so in terms of what children are wondering about and questioning what's really different from when I was in middle school, which wasn't so long ago, is the incredible amount of technology. So the pace at which I see middle schoolers you know, we're talking 11 to 14-year-olds trying to contend with life in six hours feels and seems so much more quickly um, accelerated than what I ever knew at any time in my formative growing up years. Um, for example, they they have computers in every class and they have individual computers and there's phones and there's iPads and there is just the, the amount of data constantly streaming in um, is acute. And the consequence of that is that the, the anxieties and, and concerns that I named before that are still there that have been there since I was in middle school and probably since middle school in a very particular way was invented in this culture are there the the technology and the pace of technology takes that and ramps it up to frenetic and so things look really frenetic a lot of the time in middle school mm-hmm. that would be my short answer mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah i wondered about this issue of technology because even as an adult who didn't grow up with that much technology, I see how much it affects me. Yeah. And I wonder, so in particular, there's a couple, there's a couple aspects of it that really trouble me in my own life. And one is, is how splintered my attention becomes. Yeah. How, and, and it's not just sort of fractured attention, like I'm distracted, although that, that's part of it, but it's also, it's almost, feels like a fractured self like Mm. at any given time parts of me are in completely different places Mm -hmm. and and I wonder what that must be like as a young person and then and then also there's particularly with social media there's this way in which life can become a performance Mm. where where everything starts to get filtered through oh, I can't wait to post this on Facebook or what's this photograph going to look like or how many likes is it going to get? And, and I don't know if, are you, if you're seeing that or, or if you have any thoughts on, on those pieces and, and what the consequences of that might be or, how, or yeah, in, yeah. in the school. 
Well, I guess the way that, um, what it looks like, like hearing you talk. So I didn't grow up with social media either. And I didn't grow up with this kind of technology. I grew up in a time, I'm in the, the generation where I started out with a rotary phone and somehow I've ended up with an iPhone. Um, when I was a kid, I remember my dad getting a K-Pro2 computer in 1982 and having to actually program in how to delete. And I would rather type on a typewriter than have to deal with the computer to write a paper for school. So my experience personally was one of having the kind of this first real wave of technology come in and contend with that so that by the time I was coming out of high school, I was seeing cell phones and the internet was showing up when I was just entering college. I'm what I see and kind of sit with every day is what is it like to have been born in a time when that fracturing is how you actually live, not from a way of it didn't used to be this way, but I've never known it any other way. And by the time somebody comes to middle school, that that's a fractured time as, as is without the input of exactly what you're speaking to this, this, way of being fractured. And so, and not to, and, and social media, you know, I mean, there's been so much about social media. So I suppose like the deeper wondering for me that I sit with when I sit with these kids oftentimes is what, what is it that's required as somebody who has grown up in first wave to be sitting with these children who are growing up in what we might call second or third wave technology and what's required to be teaching them the skill of what it looks like to be human when the first incarnation of humanness that you might have encountered isn't really humanness at all. It's fracturedness in a three mile wide and two inch deep approach towards being in the world. And that, that, that piece that you spoke of where people are, because I, I totally relate, like my, my capacity for concentration I watch and I'm like, I have, I can't concentrate the same way. My ability to read has actually, I think, been altered by, by technology because I get these bits. I get bits of information and I read them and I move on. Sitting down with a book is a whole, it like, takes real practice. So now we have children who have never known it to be any other way. And so, so reading, what it, what it looks like in my days is, Kids show up in middle school and they, people start to think that they have disorders like ADD and ADHD and anxiety and depression. And that's what we're naming it. And I wonder, are we really seeing something that's quote unquote diagnosable or are we seeing something that's dying in a time be, when we have so much, the pace of things is so fast that the skills of, of living are barely remembered by those of us who are just one step ahead. I can barely remember it. And now I'm being asked to teach it and hold, hold and, and bring those skills forth. Um, so, and I, you know, that, the, that piece that you spoke of, I guess I'm just going back to it again, this sense of being fractured. Um, there's something palpable about walking around a middle school campus where things, where, like in springtime, for instance, one of the things that happens in springtime in middle school and anyone who's worked in middle school for any set amount of time, and I imagine this is high school too, and 
a bit more probably in elementary school, but middle school is where you see it the most true is, I mean, springtime hits and it is like hormone city. They are bouncing off the walls. The sun comes out. It's people are running around. Their voices are loud. You walk down the hall and it is the most, it's the loudest places you've ever been. They're screaming, they're yelling, they're calling, they're, you know, they're jumping out of classes. But now we've added this part where the, they aren't coming from a winter time that's a quiet time. They're coming from a winter time that was full of social media and full of, of all of these, this input of technology that also, and this is a total aside, but also social media isn't real most of the time. So kids come in and they're, they don't have this, their sense of image is very based on like their Instagram picture. What's the image they're projecting to the world? It's a strange thing when 13-year-olds are marketing themselves 24-7. Yeah. That's where I would, that's the, that sense of technology. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself thinking about when you mentioned both so much, so much happening virtually and the, and winter not being a period of rest. I just think about the body and Mm. it's, it's exhausting Mm -hmm. to even think about. Yeah. Um, and I have, I pulled a quote for our conversation actually that I'd like to read because something you said about, um, this fracturing being diagnosed as anxiety made me think about it. So I'm going to read this and maybe we can just speak a bit about it. So this is, uh, by Carol Black, who's an education advocate and writer. And she wrote a, a long essay called on the wildness of children. And this is an excerpt from that. A bear's wild nature is evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to carry the impulse to roam at will over a territory of hundreds of square miles. When you put a bear in a cage, it paces relentlessly back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until its paws bleed. The bleeding paws tell the zookeeper, if she is listening, a story. A story of wide open spaces, of rushing rivers teeming with fish, of wriggling grubs in the moist soil under rocks, of the fragrance of wild blueberries carried for miles on the wind. Some animals can live in cages. Squirrels and rats, pigeons and gulls, adapt and thrive under almost any conditions, no matter how far removed from their original nature. The baby squirrels we nursed at the wildlife center would wrap their little fingers around the plastic syringe of milk and suck with an indomitable will to survive. But other wild animals cannot adapt. They become dysfunctional, traumatized. They, quote, fail to thrive. You can find their stories in the zookeeper's manuals. They pace till their paws bleed. They regurgitate their food. They pull out their own fur or pluck out their own feathers. They become abnormally aggressive abnormally fearful, or they just sicken and die. Some of our children, it turns out, are more like pigeons than squirrels, and some are more like bears. Some of them adapt to the institutional walls we put around them, and some of them pace till their paws bleed. The bleeding of these children, if we listen, can tell us many stories about ourselves. The boy drugged with Adderall tells us a story of forests full of trees to climb, rivers to swim and paddle, open meadows to run across. The girl who slowly starves herself 
tells us of a family and clan in which acceptance is a birthright rather than something we compete for with thinness and good grades. The kids who fight back, who become defiant to the point of self-destruction, tell us a story of freedom from authoritarian control, from petty rewards and punishments, from endless surveillance and evaluation. The kids who turn to drugs tell us of feelings of warmth, of energy, of intimacy, of peace that they don't find in their lives of never-ending, scheduled, competitive, busy work. So, yeah, yeah I'm just, as, as, someone who, as someone who is in the schools, I'm, I guess I'm wondering how that resonates with you. Yeah. So, it doesn't really resonate objectively as much as subjectively. And what I mean by that is, I hear that piece, and what comes to mind is that um, somehow I've been claimed in my life, and I have no idea why or how, because this was not my idea of a good time or a good idea at all to work in a middle school, but that somehow somebody had the good idea and some sense that my work in the world should be one who works with bears in institutions and mm-hmm. and that when the paws of those bears start to bleed my work is to walk to the people who are running the institution and say let them out a little bit and let them come over to me so I can pet them um and that's what I do I have there and and that the other thing is is that piece of writing is very, very true. It's very true. And I, with the exception of, I wouldn't say that children universally are meant to be in institutions. And adaptation to such a place isn't necessarily a sign of a good thing. But it is something about the size and the capacity and the time and the learning and the training and maybe the people they come from and what's happened before that they're able to do it. But it's been my experience that most, most children are, are more, have more capacity to fly out of cages than the institutions we put them in, which is a huge conversation about the state of education and what education is doing. And we don't have time to get into that. But my work is to work with the bears. And I would say that it's not so much that those bears and the children, and I I can give examples and I can get to that, but it's not so much that those bears who have been put in cages, that their paws are bleeding. It's that what's happened is they've become feral. And so there are the children that I often see in my days are children who we have tried to domesticate into the into the institution of school or culture or technology and that in doing so they've actually forgotten their wildness but the wildness keeps on trying to make its way out but they can't actually be wild anymore because they're part of a larger institution and so wildness even if they wanted to be, they would probably die trying to be wild. At the same time, they can't live with being domestic. It just, and I, there's a particular student that I'm thinking of that I work with right now where for the last three years, he has been the bane of existence for most teachers at our school. 
And I love this kid. I love this kid. And he's a pain in the neck. He is obstinate. He's hyper. He blurts out. He doesn't sit in class. The his, What's happened is a big part of what's happened for him is that the the schoolwork kept going and he got to the place in about sixth grade. He's in eighth grade. Now he got into about sixth grade, moving into seventh grade where that, that uh, tension between being domestic and staying wild got so strong that he, he entered into the land of the feral. And in doing so, he stopped being able to keep quote unquote, keep up with the curriculum. And the more that that happened, the more frustrated that became for him. And so he became quote unquote, a behavior problem, but he's this artistic, sensitive, thoughtful kid who belongs outside tinkering. He tells me all the time, I want to be outside. I want to be on land. Why can't I be on land? And I have to look at him and say to him, because we don't have the land here. Because you're in Silicon Valley. Because where you were born, the time and place where you were born to as the bear that you are, is one where when you walk down the street, all we see is somebody who could be a threat, who isn't fitting into the system. And that is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. But there's something about being somebody who's been asked to show up to see that heartbreak and actually maybe notice that person. And he probably won't remember me. There's a pretty good chance. He might, but he probably won't. But I'll remember him. And I think part of the work that I'm tasked with doing isn't to be remembered by these kids, but to remember them. And not just remember them as they show up in my office with bloody paws, but also to remember something more about them. And for whatever reason, that's what I've been tasked to do. And so every day I go to work as someone who has to see them and then translate them into the dominant culture. That's, that's what I would say. And that piece is, it resonates so strongly that I, again, find myself a little bit teary-eyed because it's, it's true. Um, it's, it's really true. Um, you just mentioned towards the end the your your translation function, mm. right? Of translating this kid, these kids to maybe an institution that has a certain way of seeing them. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. Well, the first thing that has to happen is I had to learn how to be willing to or have a capacity to translate kind of who I was. So I, as a you know. Mental health therapists are not the norm in middle school, although we're seeing more and more of that. Um, and so, you know, when we first think about translating, it's like, so what will happen is somebody will walk in, they'll have an IEP, which is an individual education plan. And part of that might be that they decide that because of this kid's behavior problems, they need to have counseling. And I all behavior problems are air quotes. Or because of a history of trauma, that one of the things that happens for them is that they are not able to sit for six hours in a class without um, having a major outburst or they'll shut down or any variation of things. And so that becomes diagnosed. Um, and it doesn't become diagnosed in an IEP as a, as a mental health diagnosis, but what it looks like is something that needs a um, accommodation or a service, which is reasonable, a really reasonable thing like the, that we're trying to do that. And IEP means Individual Education Plan, and just so that, so for, for people who don't know, and what that is, is at a certain, at the last point in education, when kids are having, uh, have gone through a lot of other 
there's been a lot of other areas that we've looked at, they may be referred for an assessment. That assessment will turn around. And if they qualify, then they qualify for a special education and they get an IEP, an individual education plan. So then I'm asked to come on board and work with them uh, doing individual counseling or group counseling. My days don't look that orderly by any stretch of the imagination. They look like um, anything from me spending time in a class helping a student who, with mild moderate autism who has gotten who is tired and is stuck and is trying to is starting to be a little bit self-injurious to help that child get back to some kind of being able to be regulated and not self-injurious um, to anything to helping someone who's refusing to go to class because the teacher that day is asking them to do something that they're not they're not wanting to or willing to do. God bless them, and um, and so the translating becomes. My, I spend my days with these children, um, how would I describe it? It's really hard to describe because it's kind of this nuanced dance. It's not a totally linear analytic process. Um, uh, I guess kind of sensing into what's happening and then being able to turn that into words and go back to their teacher and say, so this is, here's a way that maybe you could, that this student could be supported. Um, translating, I don't know if I'd say translating, maybe I'd say interpreting, um, doing some interpretation, bridging between cultures, trying to help adults who are in the institution of, of a school with curriculum and um, what that means in education, understand what's happening for kids when they're acting out. Because... And without losing the spirit of the, this child in the, in the middle of that, um, it is such, I'm noticing just as I talk about it, that part of what happens is it's such a huge system. <laughs> it's just such a huge system. And, you know, um, so translating looks like being able to help both the student and the adult find each other. Um, the student be able to understand. And in middle school, that's particularly acute because they're actually, they're not children so much anymore. They're mm -hmm. leaving being children. And so, so walking with them and saying, this is how the world, this is how you speak. We're going to talk in, in the world that you were born into. And we're going to, you know, there's sorrow and sadness about what that might mean for you. And that's not something that's not allowed. That's allowed in the context of the work that you and I get to do together and then working with the teachers and the administrators to say, this is what's happening for this child and, and, and can, I, can I help, can I bring you together? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Rebecca, we need to take a short break um, and then we'll come back and, and pick up here. My guest today is licensed marriage and family therapist, Rebecca Rivetto, who currently works as a staff therapist within the special education department at a middle school in California. And we will be right back after these messages. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. 
Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is marriage and family therapist Rebecca Rivetto, who in addition to her private practice, serves as a staff therapist in the special education department of a Silicon Valley middle, middle school. You can find out more about Rebecca at RebeccaRivetto.com, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-O-V-E-T-O.com. So where we left off, Rebecca, you were talking about how big these systems are. Mm. And you were talking about um, this, this role that you serve of, of caring for the ones within the system who who are having a hard time with the strictures of those systems. And so it's showing up in different ways, whether it's, you know, behavioral issues or difficulty concentrating or whatever, whatever it is. And I imagine that there are a lot of people within institutions who might be doing similar work. I think about my own background when I was doing um, practicing immigration law and I was working with, kids who are in federal detention centers and going through the deportation process. And, and there's, there's just so many institutions and systems in our culture. And one of the things that I struggled with a lot was, well, was a couple things. And, and one is that the systems are hard on everybody. Mm-hmm. So, so as someone who's working in the system, it, it can, those same challenges that, that show up in the difficulties with the kids are hitting the people working there too. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that makes the work more difficult. And, and I also personally would struggle with a sense of, am I even doing anything? You know, the system is so big, like, is this even making a difference? And, and I'm wondering, I guess, how you contend with that and, and where, where you find to plant your feet. Mm to be able to to do the work given those 
challenges? Thanks. That's a really helpful question. Kind of orients too. Um, so what comes to mind is, is um, I didn't really go into this work. Well, I didn't purposely go into the work of working with children in middle schools. However, when I was 14 years old, my school counselor asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And without any thought or consideration, I just looked at him, cocked my head to the side and said, I don't know, school child psychologist. And he wrote it down. And I would, I would, I have been led to think that it's possible that somehow something in that moment got written on the stars, on the skin of the stars. And it wasn't me who was talking. It was just where I was headed and something came through and was like, you're going to be doing this. Um, and part of what I've had to contend with in my life is this sense, and this kind of goes back to our previous conversation of like technology and, and social media and this impact of one of the things that we're, we, I contend with, and certainly the kids that I work with contend with is this overarching, constant nagging sense of celebrity and making something of yourself, that you're going to be something that you can do whatever you want you're, you, the world's your oyster. Um, and I certainly was raised with a lot of that in my, um, in the, my was being whispered and to- told into my ear. And so what I've done is I've spent a lot, a lot of my career going towards things that were going to be meaningful and important, but I'm not sure that they, I was doing it on anyone's behalf, but my own. And in doing so, that's where a lot of burnout lived. Like, I thought I was doing it for other people, but part of it was, it was because I wanted to mean something. I wanted to be, you know, make something of myself. And I wanted, and there is also this part of me that was raised by a CPS social worker and a teacher. And so the world that I found myself in was a world of service, but service does not mean that it's there so that you can look yourself in the mirror and always think to yourself, look at me, I'm, I'm doing good work. What it looks like is, in my experience, is I am one of millions of people who gets up every day and goes to a job and shows up because that is where I need it. I happen to work with middle school kids in a pretty standard middle school in Silicon Valley. This is not I'm not any more different or special than anyone else, but that work was going to burn me out if every day I was going in there contesting the system and going in there and being and proceeding as if I was fighting against something every day. And the first thing that had to come for me to be able to do the work was I, I had to actually realize that my job, my, my obligation and responsibility was to proceed as if I was needed and to work on someone's behalf other than my own and to take myself and, and not my needs necessarily, but that sense of like, I'm doing this because it's, I'm important out of it. More put myself in the position of this is what's needed and this is where I've been put and so I show up to this every day. And I do what I can, the best I can when I'm there. And I don't always leave it at work that I, who I, people in my line of work don't always leave it at work. And I've been lucky enough to somehow get claimed in a place where I can tell that I matter. But I also had to get to a place where I was willing to believe that I mattered. <laughs> and 
that meant that I had to stop moving around. I had to actually stay put for half a minute and be willing to show up for longer than two years at any one job and just go for something. And this something was, I, it was, in my case, I was going to be a mental health therapist. I tried a lot of different things first. I tried to be a teacher. I tried to be work for the, U, I mean, you know, you heard the whole thing. And when I showed up and did the job that was in front of me and just didn't go anywhere else for a while, what happened was, was that trying to fight an entire system went away. Not seeing that there was a whole system did not stop. I still see that there's a whole system. And realizing that maybe the way that something like education is needing attention isn't that somebody goes in and overhauls the whole thing, but that we show up in the neighborhood we live in and close to the neighborhood we live in, and we show up to the kids who are already there. And as if we're needed, because I've already been 13. I don't need to continue to be 13, but at 42 years old, I needed to show up for the 13-year-olds. My time as a 13-year-old is over, and it was really important that I started to realize that. And so when contending with this, this place of like, it's the system and I can't change it, you don't have to, this isn't, that's not what we're doing. We're not, that's a fairly adolescent way of say of being in the world. And I can say that because I work with adolescents and part of what I see them do every day is throw big fits at systems. That's what they do. That's part of their voice. That's an important thing. But part of being an adult is saying, I get to do two or three things in my life and I get to do them well. And the only way to do them well is to stop moving around and stop trying to be something that the thing that is right, the person who is being asked to be that's right in front of me. And sometimes that looks like working a very simple job in a very pretty ordinary way, because I can have this conversation with you and it sounds like I'm doing really amazing, insightful work. But the truth of the matter is, is that my life is fairly ordinary and the work is ordinary and it's extraordinary in its ordinariness. My mom and I talked not too long ago and I asked her, you know, do you have any regrets about your life? And she said, I've lived a full life. Sure, there are some regrets because that's how life goes. And I said, do you wish that you had done certain other things? And she said to me, you know, I've lived an extraordinary, ordinary life and it's been amazing. And from what I can tell, when I, when I personally stopped being somewhere else, ordinariness allowed extraordinariness to show up. And it shows up in when I drive to work every day and I drive through redwood trees to get there. And it shows up when someone walks into my office and he's tired and he knows that the place that he can take a respite for 30 minutes between classes is to come up and curl up on my couch and take a nap. And I will sit there and do notes while he's snoring in the background. And it shows up with the way that the school that I, butt, that I work at butts up against mountains and I get to have a moment from, second, from day to day and I look back and I remember that the people who are watching are not only people, that those mountains are watching too and the trees are listening. And there are, there's more than just what's my idea of what needs to be done that's being done. And that I've been claimed to be here and it was not the place I would have thought. 
by any stretch of the imagination. If you had told me I'd be working at a middle school in Silicon Valley with 953 middle schoolers and people that I kind of on the surface didn't think that I would really get along with and it's pretty much the best thing that I could possibly be doing given the skill set that I come with, then that's kind of what it looks like. And the other really significant piece is there's, I don't do this by myself. There's nobody does this by themselves and nobody does it well. And that's one of the biggest myths I think we live with in the kind of work, especially this kind of work is, and maybe work in general and maybe life in general, that one of the huge myths that we're kind of fed as a, as a certain kind of, uh, how would I say it, process cheese whiz of, of life is that you all by yourself are going to be something magnificent. And that's not how it works. I work with a team of people and we tag team all day long. And I also work with those children. And if they didn't show up, I would have no work to do. And so thank God they get there every day, even if they're bears in who don't belong in cages, because it makes it possible for me to be needed too, because they're willing to get there every day. So it kind of looks like that. That would be what I would say. I get excited. <laughs> I know. There's so much in there. I'm trying to figure out where to go. Well, okay. So so, so one question from that or something. So so I hear what you're saying about, about staying in a place and, and the extraordinary ordinary and that by, by showing up and, and dropping the need for something to be big or sort of um, important in a social media kind of way mm. that, that, that there's space for, for the extraordinary to show up. Mm. And you also mentioned not pushing against the systems. And that is the one place where I sort of got a little caught or stuck mm-hmm. because because so many of these systems are really troubling and, and do need to be changed. And, and I'm wondering, it strikes me that, that maybe what you were saying wasn't that they don't need to be changed, but that one person coming at them with that energy of, I'm going to fight this, I'm going to change it, isn't nece- doesn't necessarily serve. But I guess I am wondering about, about that systemic piece and, and, and maybe a a little more of your thoughts on, on that about, is, is there some way to show up for, for the day to day and for the hard work um, and still hold in our, in our, hold something open for systemic change too? Yeah. I'm not sure that showing up for the day to day isn't a pretty revolutionary way to show up for a systemic change in a time when, it's harder and harder to show up that to keep showing up seems like a pretty radical move. Um, and it's relentless and revolutions sometimes don't always look like people chanting in the street. They look like people continuing to show up when their hearts are broken and letting that inform them. Um, and one of the hard lessons that I had to learn was that, you know, I spent a good part of my life up until my mid thirties operating at that, that I was, I was going to fight the good fight. And, and I have a lot of that social justice revolutionary 
tendency in me. And I'm not, I think that there, that people who are younger than me, and I'm not that old, but I'm, you know, in my forties, that that's where that energy is. But for me at, at this age, that's not how my energy is. And what I did is I completely depleted my system. I had nothing, I couldn't do it anymore. And so there had to be another way. And that what I had to learn and be taught and apprenticed into was what does it look like to show up to something that you may not ethic, like value-wise agree with and you see that the system's not working, but instead of going in and fighting against it every day, what happens if you learn it? Learn it all the way. Learn everything about it. Not just the parts that you think you don't like. So an example for me is, is that in the district where I work, which isn't uncommon, you know, we do training and part of doing the tra- this tr- uh, training that we have is something where we have to learn how to de-escalate and if necessary, we have to learn how to restrain. Now, I am morally and ethically and values-wise and everything that comes forward in me that comes from a radical socialist parental environment is like, we will not restrain children. We will not restrain children. I will not restrain children. The system's wrong. I mean, I can go, I can tap into that vein for in the heartbeat. But what I was told by somebody, which was really, really good teaching, was you need to make sure that that's the hill you want to bloody your nose on. Because what would it be like if you stuck around and actually went to the training and learned what they're teaching and then maybe be able to see it for what it is and go back and do something different? And that was the part that when I say it's not that we can't change the system, it's not, we the systems do need to be changed. I absolutely agree with you. But I think that part of what has to happen is we have to actually learn what they are first. And part of that means you have to stop going around places from place to place fast and being frenetic and actually stick to one thing for a while and say, I show up here, I'm going to learn this. And I'm going to do this one small, ordinary piece and be able to change maybe one piece of that. And the thing is, is there are 7 billion people in the world. And it's, I don't know when it happened that people, that we started to think that these things, one, were human. The only thing that could be possible was that it was human-centered around all of this. And two, that it had to happen from one or two people. If everyone did some ordinary, extraordinary pieces and stuck around to what they were being called to and learned the very thing that was in front of them and changed one or two things, I imagine that systems probably would change. And maybe that's what revolution is looking like these days. I don't know, but it's what my body can handle is what I have learned. It's what my body can handle. And there's a much deeper well when I do that. And so I show up for the thing that's that's claimed me every day. Thank you for that, Rebecca. Mm. That that was a helpful clarification. Mm. Um, I I'm trying to. I guess I am wondering about. You know, we've talked a lot about what's difficult, and we've talked a bit about about the showing up, and and I can hear in there that that there is a lot of joy to be found in that day to day, and. I guess I'm wondering if you have any if you have any stories of mm. of moments of of those extraordinary joys breaking into the ordinary in your work. Yeah, I, let me see how fast I can tell the story of the fava beans. Okay. 
because um, <laughs> it's a little bit of a long one. But so we have a school garden and the therapeutic class that I work with, we planted fava beans and the winter came and it went and the beans were starting to go to seed and the days are pretty intense. Um, so oftentimes I'm going for six hours straight. I have a walkie talkie that I carry. I'm getting called into classrooms. Sometimes I'm seeing kids, but on this particular day, things were quiet because we're in state testing. The irony of the fact that we're in state testing is the day that I found myself in the garden. Now, mm-hmm. if that doesn't tell you something that's being being sung and trying somebody trying to get through, I don't know what does. And I'm in there, and I'm with another teacher, and she's like, come on, come in. And I go to the beans, and I start to be able to cut down the beans, and it turns out that we've grown all of these fava beans. And so I radio into the therapeutic class, and I'm like, does anyone want to come out? I'm in the garden picking the beans. And they're like, no, they're on the computers. Uh-huh. And about five minutes later, one of the kids, I get a radio back. So-and-so's coming out. Okay, great. So that student comes out. And it's like 85 degrees out, which is kind of unusual. We get in the garden. And this girl just couldn't be like, I'm like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut them. I give her a, a job to do. And that job is just completely not something that she's even interested in because she cannot get enough of the ladybugs. She cannot get enough of the ladybugs. And the beans are all covered by aphids. And she's not even that interested in the fact that the fava beans are like these enormous beans that she's never seen before. She is just, and this is a child who doesn't talk. She does not talk. And I actually had a moment where I was like, I wonder if she's going to stop talking because I got to get this work done. And I thought, well, keep going, keep, keep listening. And she's telling me about the colors of the ladybugs and what they're doing and where and why are they like this and how did this happen and, and just on and on. So finally the bell rings, she goes back, I take the fava beans and I have to wash them. Well, three other boys come up, 13-year-old boys, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm washing these beans. They're like, we want to come. So we all go into the kitchen and wash the beans and we start talking about the beans and they start talking about their day. We end up on the table. We're shucking the beans. They don't know what shucking is. They can't believe they grew these beans. I'm telling the story really fast. (laughs) Long story short is through the course of the day. And I don't know how this happened or why this happened or what it even like, what was, what was happening. But I spent a day with a basket of fava beans And I picked the beans with the children, and we shucked the beans, and then I cooked the beans, and then they shucked the second skins off them, and then we ate these beans together. And we had gone from, they had been seeds that were planted in the ground, to we were now eating this meal together that they had grown, and we had cooked, and we had prepared together. In the middle of a very ordinary middle school day when state testing was going on. And somehow in the course of, an, of a day, I found myself with a basket of fava beans and seven different kids following me around, working together in different aspects of preparing these beans. Now, I don't know what that was, but I, it didn't seem to be insignificant. And it was something that I just had some kind of an eye to notice. What I was seeing, I don't know, but all of those kids now we now have fava beans together and they know and we learned and they grew them and it was pretty amazing. And that was a pretty extraordinary, ordinary thing to have happen because that's kind of sometimes what happens. Those moments just show up and maybe God's willing, you get to be there when they do and have some sense that's not your own, 
of what to do with the basket that's been handed to you when you're being asked to pick the beans. That's it. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm. And, and just sort of magical that that mm-hmm. managed to happen. <laughs> right. There's in school. Mm-hmm. There's magic. You know, you asked me sort of about the translating before and part of, um, what I do as a translator is I, I get to keep the, the line that I use with the kids sometimes is don't let the muggles get you down. Um, and we joke about that from Harry Potter. Um, but it's like part of what has happened for me by doing this work is I've gotten to remember something magical too, that maybe I had, wouldn't otherwise have remembered. And there's just, as I'm talking about it now, it's kind of coming to me like maybe it's not, this, the gift that's been granted to me by getting to work with in this work is that there's some magic that maybe never quite got forgotten in me and being with them reminds me of that magic too. Mm. Yeah. And that's where the translating happens. Well, I think that's actually a lovely place for us to, to close because we're almost out of time. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me in conversation and for your ongoing daily, extraordinary, ordinary work (laughs) with your community's young people uh, who have so much to tell us about the troubles of these times. Mm. Thank you so much, Annie, for having me. It's been really fun. My guest today has been Rebecca Rovetto, a marriage and family therapist who, in addition to her private practice, serves as a staff therapist in the special education department of a Silicon Valley middle, middle school. You can find out more about Rebecca at RebeccaRovetto.com, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-O-V-E-T-O.com. Next week, Susan Olesic will be hosting her Nine Prisons, One Key series with Enneagram Type 3, the performer achiever. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It has been such a pleasure to be here with you all today. Thank you for listening in. Should life be granted to us between this time and the next, I'll speak to you on June 15th. In the meantime, may we be willing to stand at the edge, unblinking, together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion and to Pathways to Health for Our World with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's health and wellness channel.